Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. I'm Taylor Riggs. I'm filling in for Lisa Abramowitz today. Of course, Pim, the big news this week is tech earnings. We're wrapping up tech earnings here on this Friday morning. I'm looking at the big A's, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet. And to help break down some of these earnings with me, we have in studio with us Colin Gillis. He's the director of research at CR Partners. Colin, I want to start with Alphabet. Of course, that's Google's parent. I was reading a few of the analyst notes this morning, and it's just incredible. You have a company in the 20th year still posting top line revenue growth of 20%. Where do you see Google still continuing to grow in the future? Is it in the Google Cloud or is there something else? Hi, Taylor, so you know, a remarkable 2017 for Google. This is the first year that the company cracked $100 billion in total revenue, and to still be growing north of 20% is an incredible feat. Now, as an, an investment, the thing we love most about Google is that you can see where the immediate near-term revenue is going to come from, right? It's core search business, but you can also see where future growth is going to come from, right? Whether it's their Android platform, whether it's YouTube, whether it's their YouTube TV platform, whether it's um, their Waymo driverless cars. So there's multiple areas, including, like you mentioned, their cloud business, which cracked $1 billion in revenue for the December quarter. Tell people what is the cloud business and why does it matter whether I use Amazon's web services, which is their cloud business, or whether I use Google's cloud business or someone else's cloud business like Microsoft? Sure. And that's a fantastic question, Pim, because, you know, the... The leader in the cloud is Amazon, and it's AWS. And it, you know, if you want to put it in perspective, they do more business in the cloud than all the other competitors combined, right? It's in the north of $5 billion. Plus, it grew tremendously for Amazon in the fourth quarter. Growth actually picked back up again north of 40% year over year. So it's computing cycles. Why do you need to have local resources when you can have massive computing cycles available to you that you can tap into as needed. So it's just like, why own a car then leave it parked in a garage, right? When you could just have a car whenever you want to drive one and the resources get shared among different customers, right? And that's the, the concept of the public cloud. Now, the flip side is that even though this is going to be a massive business, that it may become a commodity like a utility and that there'll be price compression coming in over time. But suffice to say, the book of business is going to be so large that whoever captures the majority of it, it's going to be lucrative no matter what the margin. So you're saying that even if it becomes a commodity, it's going to be a ways before that happens. And the amount of money that they can make on that road is so big and so uh, consistent that 
the competitive issues don't really come into play. Correct. That's right. I mean, you know, competitive issues always come into a play to a certain degree. But but again, you know, even a. Small... I mean, it's not like Microsoft's cloud is that much more uh, expensive or that much better than the cloud that you would use if you were going to go to Amazon. Ultimately, you know, there are some pains to switching, but the switching barriers will continue to be reduced. I mean, think about, you know, when you use your search engine, right? Most people use Google. Right? But the actual switching cost to move to Bing is relatively low, right? And, and, but yet people don't really switch yet, um, but that may happen in the future down the road. So it, again, it, it's an area of growth. But I would also focus more on what's happening at YouTube. Right? There's been a little concern uh, about some of the videos that you Just know, tell this story, about, because we were talking just before you came in here about younger people. And when I mean younger people, these are the consumers of the future. They do not seem to know what NBC, ABC, and CBS are. Correct. They know all about YouTube, and they just watch those videos all day long. That's right. So when we sit down, my 10-year-old son, you know, we try to figure out what program you know, is where. Right? It's either Netflix or it's Amazon or it's on YouTube. And we also use YouTube TV to get our live TV and it has the unlimited DVR storage, cloud storage, so you can record any programs, right? So it's really, it's a fantastic offering. And if they can start to, if Google can start to monetize television to the same degree that they've monetized YouTube, right? That's a, could be a very lucrative driver for them. And the idea of content consumption, right? It's completely changed, right? You know, the, the, the brands have completely moved. And, company that's nowhere to be seen in any of this, of course, is Apple, right? You've got Amazon in there, you've got Google in there, you've got Netflix in there, but Apple's a zero. You mentioned Amazon. I want to touch on that quickly while you have, uh, why we have you here. Uh, you talk about it's the first time the company's generated over a billion dollars in quarterly profit. I've been asking this question. You're part of my poll. Is Amazon getting too big? where they're starting to enter into a lot of different industries. We have Whole Foods now. At what point do they start to dry, uh, you know, attract regulators, perhaps? Sure. I mean, you know, what's interesting is we used to talk about the competition between Apple and Google, right? And back when Android was first launching, and Eric Schmidt, uh, who was the CEO of Google, used to be on Apple's board. And, but now the battle that's much more interesting is Alphabet versus Amazon, because these two companies are colliding on multiple points, including advertising, including smart homes. You see Amazon pushing into many facets of technology, right? And the purchase of Whole Foods uh, is, is a great example. They're, they're trying to get into groceries. They want to get into medicine. Um, they're you know, in your house with Alexa. <laughs> in our house with Alexa, exactly, right? And so... You know, that's always a concern, but uh, in terms of government regulation, but that's a concern for any of these companies that we're discussing uh, in, in technology. These are major forces. And what Jeff Bezos is chasing after is a very big picture in terms of how much of your consumer dollars he wants to capture, which is basically all of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. If, if you got the chance to uh, sit down with Tim Cook, the chief executive of Apple, and he said, look, I, I'm interested in your thoughts about what do you think we ought to be doing so that five years from now we're still part of the conversation? What would you suggest? I would suggest uh, that Mr. Cook consider taking more risks. And he's been a very um, careful steward of Apple, but I think that that may wind up uh, catching up to them. So when we sit down and we have the various you know, home assistants, right? We've got Google Home, we've got Alexa devices. Uh, Apple is just so far behind in AI and I would have them focus more in that area. And I would also consider Apple's software skills and prowess. Um, 
I think they're a fantastic hardware company, but I think the software you know, is not innovative and frequently uh, is lackluster. And so you know, right now, right, as the you know, concern of the iPhone super cycle is sort of, you know, sorry, that thesis is falling apart. All that's really left is, you know, cap structure and, and, and debt, you know, share repurchasing, right, uh, and dividends. And so a cap structure play is not necessarily a fantastic investment thesis. It's, it's an investment thesis. But if the iPhone cycle, you know, falls apart, then Apple, that, that's 70% of revenue. The Apple is not in a position to replace that easily. Yeah. Does that mean going out and making acquisitions and take a look at our FA function, free cash flow, 50 billion dollars what do they do with the cash yeah i mean it's a great question and you know they're, they're returning it to shareholders right and the, the excitement the biggest piece of news that came from the earnings call was net cash zero right apple has pledged to return all of its cash um, or to deploy all of its cash right whether that's stock repurchases or dividends thanks very much colin gillis a pleasure director of research for chatham road partners cr partners congratulations on your new venture much appreciated and we appreciate you coming in and sharing your knowledge with us Good morning. This is Bloomberg Radio. I'm Taylor Riggs filling in for Lisa Abramowitz. You know, Pim, like you were mentioning, we got a lot of news this week concerning more developments in the investigation of Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election. To walk us through all of this, where we stand, where we go from here, is Clint Watts. He's a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Clint, you know, broadly speaking here, just to start us off, do tech companies need to do more to prevent more Russian meddling in our election? Have they done enough? Yeah, so they've made some drastic improvements over the last year. I, I think Facebook has been quite transparent. They brought out a lot of the issues. They seem to have tracked it down fairly quickly, and they've moved more aggressively in other elections around the world. But the biggest thing that all the social media companies should be required to do by law is to say what the source is of political and, and social issue advertising. It's standard for radio uh, like this. It would, it's standard for television and print. And because this layer of, uh, of attribution is not there in social media, it makes it much easier for a foreign power to influence the U.S. audiences. All right, let's just move on to what is going to be perhaps a uh, most watched memo, at least of the weekend. And this has to do with the memo that was put together by GOP staffers on the House Intelligence Committee having to do with the FBI's investigation into Russian meddling in the U.S. elections. What is your thoughts about what do you believe is in that memo? I, I imagine what they're trying to do is selectively pull information out of the authorization, the application for a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant, which connects the dossier to justifications for that application. You're going to have to tell people, remind them of the dossier and the people involved, because when you said to use uh, selective information, it has to do with eavesdropping on a Trump campaign foreign policy aid Carter Page. Right. So the target of the application for the search warrant was Carter Page, who was named by the Trump team as one of his foreign policy advisors and who had shown up actually in Moscow, you know, uh, doing a talk during the run up to the election. What this application did was it asked for surveillance on him. And in that application, what I think will probably come out is that they cited the dossier. This is the XMI6 uh, uh, Steele dossier. 
which brought forth lots of raw reporting and was put up on BuzzFeed. And essentially, it asserted that Russia was trying to you know, win the election uh, for Trump and to suppress Clinton uh, in the run-up. That dossier has been under great contention in the uh, House Intelligence Committee. They, they've really fought it, the veracity of it, because the Clinton uh, campaign funded it at one point. It was also refunded, uh, initially funded by a, a traditionally Republican uh, opposition research group. And so they're trying to steer this into a conspiracy that the FBI and this FISA application were trying to push Clinton forward and suppress Trump going into the election. And this this plays to the president's narrative of a witch hunt. Uh, Clint, I want to ask, uh, this week, President Trump said he may authorize a release of the memo that's not redacted. Are there any risks to national security if the memo is released that doesn't have redactions to it? Yeah, I think there's risk in two ways. So with regards to redactions, if it discloses sources or methods, this really hurts us in terms of our intelligence capability around the world. It will will disclose how we went or how we use that information or where we get it from. Even broader than that, this has never happened before in our history. It would be the selective leaking out of classified information from you know, surveillance applications. So just imagine the tidal wave of disclosures that could be used for political purposes by either party moving forward. Uh, somebody could go and dig into any application written by any agent going back many years, uh, pull a piece of information out for political purposes, and then either use it to attack that investigation, the investigator, or to try and undermine uh, you know, judicial processes writ large. So it's very dangerous for the country in the sense that we just saw a fight for FISA reauthorization a few weeks ago so we could use this tool in the pursuit of terrorist, you know, and uh, foreign intelligence efforts. So it's pretty damaging to the institutions of democracy, and it seems like a very short-run political plan for what ultimately be a long-run disaster for the country. Okay, but uh, Clint, let me just play devil's advocate here. In a world in which there is WikiLeaks, uh, in a world in which everything that you commit to any kind of digital repository is pretty much available to a hacker, uh, who on the other side, who is the who's the on the other side that doesn't already know all this? It's isn't it the public, the American people that don't know? Uh, I don't really think that's the case. I mean, this goes through a very rigorous process. The FISA process, just internally to the FBI or any investigative agency, is exhausting. So it usually takes weeks or months to even put that package together. It then goes to a series of judges who then review it and, and explore it and see if there's validity to it. So we have processes in place. The public Uh, giving a snippet out of what might be a 60-page or 100-page application even, uh, probably doesn't have the context to understand it or has any context around the FISA process and what's trying to be done. So I I put it in the same as WikiLeaks, which is these disclosures are selective. They often omit tons of context. I don't think the public is informed. I really think they're confused in the end. All right. So if they're if they're confusing two things, what do you think the ramifications are going to be if the memo is actually released, which the GOP seems to think is going to happen? Uh, You know, ultimately, it will lead to outcry by one side or the other. You know, we've seen this with both political groups. Yeah, but what would happen? I mean, I'm just curious, like what physically will happen? I understand that there'll be a lot of shouting uh, and, you know, the Sunday talk shows will be all full of this. But 
Is there anything that will happen? Just give you about 10 seconds. Anything happen to the U.S. intelligence agencies? Yeah, you're going to see uh, a withdrawal, retraction of uh, investigations and the fact that uh, investigators can't trust the systems which they're using to bring their cases forward. They'll feel ambushed from both sides politically, and they're going to have a hard time moving forward with investigations, particularly in political corruption cases on the criminal side and foreign counterintelligence cases on the national security side. Thank you very much. Clint Watts is a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. I'm Taylor Riggs, filling in for Lisa Abramowitz. I'm also sitting next to Pim. We are eagerly awaiting Sunday, the Super Bowl. Pim, do you watch the Super Bowl? Are you watching for the game or for the ads? Uh, I probably will watch the ads more than I will watch the game, but okay. that's just because of I'm Well, many. our next guest might like that answer. Yes. <laughs> Let's bring him in now. Nat Ives, he's the Ad Age Executive editor. He is joining us now. Uh, Nat, okay, you have to help me out here. Are Super Bowl ads still as expensive as they are, even with all the cord cutters and the millennials who are seemingly not uh, not watching? Absolutely. The Super Bowl ad prices can fluctuate a little bit, but they're basically on an upward grind to plateau. You're not going to see anything commensurate with the drops in regular TV ratings in Super Bowl prices because Super Bowl ratings don't drop the way the rest of TV does. Super Bowl doesn't drop the way the rest of the NFL does even. Super Bowl defies gravity and the ad prices stay there too. Nat, what can I get for $5 million if I happen to have some spare cash and I'd like to use it during the Super Bowl? That'll buy you 30 seconds, but remember that $5 million is not actually going to be enough. In most cases, NBC is going to say 30, 30 seconds will cost you $5 million, but the cost to do that deal will let you do that deal only if you also agree to spend a lot of money with us during the Olympics and the rest of the year. How much? I don't know. It depends. These, you know, Anheuser-Busch InBev, for example, has been a sponsor for so long that it's got all kinds of deals that are grandfathered in. That's going to be a different situation than somebody who walks up for the first time, knocks on NBC's door and says, hey, can I buy an ad? Nat, I always wonder this. If the ad sales depend on who is playing, for example, do I want to buy this year because the Patriots made it into the Super Bowl, for example? It's fascinating. We always look at how the matchups are shaking out to see how the ratings are going to do during the playoffs, but it stops there. I mean, it's not great news for anybody if two small market teams that never got national uh, attention during the season and don't have wide followings meet in the Super Bowl. That doesn't help, but it also doesn't seem to hurt that much. It's really more about the quality of the game and Um, that's unpredictable. And for the most part in recent years, the games have been pretty close. Last year we had our first overtime game. So again, the ratings don't depend on factors that ordinarily would lift or tank an ordinary football game or TV broadcast. 
Have you seen many of the ads that are scheduled to be uh, broadcast during the Super Bowl? I have, and uh, for better or worse, so have many Americans. These are pre-released, of course, as they have been for many years. They all, that's not to say they, they all have, but a significant portion of them have. So uh, I've seen some funny ads. Uh, I've seen more funny ads. It's been interesting to try to infer what the trends are going to be this year and compare them to last year. We don't have a complete picture yet. There will be surprises on game day, but uh, we know a lot already. Nat, I wonder about the motivation for these companies. I mean, what's different about the Super Bowl is people actually look forward to watching them. I don't want to fast forward through them. So if I'm a company and I'm thinking about buying ad space, do I actually expect more people to buy my product or do I just want to be in the hype and be in the the, the know and, and what's being talked about the next day? There's a couple of goals and, and one is probably your legit business goal. I need to sell more of my widgets or cars or printers or or what have you, or I need to drive awareness of a product that nobody knows exists, or I need to speak to a very uh, specific audience, and this is, for whatever reason, a good way to do it. Real business goals. The other part of it, though, is the PR game, where everybody wants to polish their halo, get their company's name or their product's name on the tip of the tongue. You want to become something closer to a household name if you're in the Super Bowl. That's why you've seen from time to time a uh, super glue company show up at the Super Bowl. You know, they they did it once. It was their entire year's ad budget, and uh, they they say it, it worked okay, but they didn't come back. Others uh, are playing the, the two-fold game, really. They, they want to get the, the buzz of being discussed in the press the way that we at AdAge and everybody else in the business press are, are doing right now, um, and then hopefully also sell some product. You know, it's funny, the, the pre-release strategy is slightly controversial uh, because it takes some of the surprise out of the game, but in the case of one this year, Pringles, you know, people, people buy snacks for the Super Bowl. Pre-releasing their ad might have literally increased sales for Super Bowl Sunday. Let's go through just some of the ads quickly. Give me your thoughts about them. The M&M spot, it's the first in three years. It stars Danny DeVito. Give me about 10 seconds on that. I mean, I like it okay. Uh, I can see how Danny DeVito is a funny way to say, uh, you know, don't eat me. Um, It's just a a weird gimmick the M&Ms have uh, where the spokes candies are all edible and are mildly concerned about it, but not totally concerned. All right, 10 seconds on Keanu Reeves with Squarespace. This is controversial in our office. I like it better than some others. This is Keanu just standing on a motorcycle and appearing to kind of take off at the end. What can I say? I think it's a little bit different. Um, Others here disagree. All right. And finally, let me get your thoughts on uh, avocados. Avocados from Mexico is consistently funny. Each year they bring you a little vignette that makes you laugh, and they do it again this year. And they work in a selling proposition or at least a serving suggestion, which might do the same job. All right. Thanks very much. Uh, for, oh, by the way, who do you think is going to win? Uh, probably the Pats. Okay. Sorry to say. Uh, oh, sorry. All right. Well, <laughs> careful there, Nat. All right. Thanks very much. Nat Ives is executive editor at Age, and uh, he can be followed on Twitter at Nat Ives. Get ready for a Super Bowl 52. Joining us now to tell us all about Deutsche Bank is Yalman Onoran. He's our senior writer when it comes to banks. And uh, Yalman, I know that you are the uh, author of the book about zombie banks, which is a great read. Is Deutsche Bank going to become a zombie bank? 
That's an interesting point you just raised. I, you know, Dolce was not among the zombies that, that I, know I that. wrote about in 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 2011 when my book was published. Um, German banks had a chapter in there, and and uh, Commerzbank was a was the biggest zombie. All the Landesbanks that that collapsed during the the crisis were, uh, but but not Deutsche Bank. Now Deutsche Bank is looking much worse than all these other guys who finally really nursed all their wounds and and recovered. But Deutsche's crisis came much later, right? The European crisis, 2010, 11, all the different, uh, uh, you know, government government uh, debt crises that erupted one after another. So Europe Europe fell apart much later than than US did, and and it it was its second crisis. But that hurt Deutsche more, and now Deutsche is still struggling, and that and that's why you know earnings constantly uh, upset, you know, quarter after quarter. And turnaround plans are not really, you know, going anywhere. So that I mean, so in a way, it's become a zombie. It's not as zombie as the as the other German banks were because it it didn't lose the the big numbers that really brought them down during the crisis. But it's been losing money, and and what's worse, it's not making money, and and that doesn't really. That doesn't really work when you're such a big bank globally, and and your competitors are doing much better. Yeah, you talk about the turnaround plan. We note that the shares are down about five point three percent this morning. I wonder how impatient are investors getting with the CEO John Cryan? Does he even have the time left that he needs to enact the turnaround plan? Well, you know, just a quarter ago, there were there were actually lots of rumors that that Cryan was on the way out because the turnaround wasn't working, things weren't going well. Then they reported, uh, you know, third quarter numbers that weren't that bad. There, it looked a little more promising, so the the rumors died down. But fourth quarter is bad again. So every time, you know, people are disappointed. These these rumors come around because they, the rumors are based on some kind of unease among the biggest investors, you know, and some of them, you know, then go on the record saying, well, oh, no, he's okay, we're, we're okay with the CEO. But clearly, some aren't, and on behind the scenes, they are raising those concerns and saying, when are we going to see the, the, the positive results? So what are the divisions? Maybe you could break, break down the details for us and, sh and, and share like, okay, so what are they really great at? What do they need to improve? And what should they get rid of? Well, you know, what Deutsche Bank has been great at historically, traditionally, is trading. They're a big trading powerhouse, just like Goldman Sachs. Now, and and Goldman, as we've talked during U.S. earnings. Trading what, though? Uh, everything? Fixed income most, okay. but but everything, really. But equities, too. Fixed income and equities. They're, they're a tra trading powerhouse. They're, you know, like Goldman. And Goldman has also suffered in trading. But when you looked at for example, last year's and last quarter's Goldman figures, and everybody talked about this, their investment banking side, non-trading side, was doing great. They were writing, underwriting, debt underwriting, equity, 30% up, 20% up. And everybody was like, how can you not translate into this into trading as well? And they, they, you know, they were struggling, the CFO, CEO. But with Doce, trading is down constantly, and underwriting is down, and M&A is unchanged. I mean, like you want to see something good and it's not there. And mean and this has been happening for uh, for several years now, which means they've been losing market share. You know, everybody's fake trading numbers are bad this year, but last year US banks especially and and even the French banks so great fake improvement. Now Deutsche didn't. So what happens is when everybody else has a good year, 
and Deutsche has a so-so year, they're losing market share. So they've lost market share constantly in trading. Now they've lost market share in, in, in other investment banking activities, underwriting uh, stocks, bonds. So, so all the things they were really good at, which is really their investment bank, they have been bleeding and that's, that's not good. Uh, quickly, just to wrap it up, I want to talk about if they're still able to attract and retain talent. We heard from the CEO this morning that said he was more on the generous side with bonuses. Is that to retain talent? Right. I mean, and that that's what they had to do. Um, you know, they didn't pay bonuses last year, which means they had to they, they couldn't keep doing that because you lose a lot of people. So that's why expenses didn't come down as they, they targeted, um, which also hurts the bottom line. But you know, they have to keep their traders and their investment bankers, then they have to pay bonuses. Thank you very much, uh, Yaman Onaran. He is our senior writer when it comes to banks and he wrote a great book on zombie banks. I urge you to check it out. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.